first, we're going to pray before we start. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this day and this evening and this chance to be able to gather together in your name. Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the wisdom that it contains that is rooted in the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that as we spend time together tonight that you would help us to unpack what is in this book in such a way that it would encourage us to live more boldly for Christ. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So part of the reason that I wanted to listen to that particular hymn is that the words of that hymn are really quite remarkable. And it is a reminder when you look at the hymn and the text to it that the church is the one that has the key to the kingdom of God and that this world is looking in vain for every other answer that there is and we are the only ones as the church who have the life-giving truth that this world needs. So more about that in a minute. Uh, let's say together our verse, if I can get the projector to come on, there we are. Please say this with me. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So I want to welcome uh, anybody who is new, particularly people on the live stream or the podcast, and just say we are very glad to have you. Um, thank you to people who are telling their friends. We get more people each time. And just a quick word about how to approach this class. Um, particularly if you're just joining us now, you may be daunted by the fact that this is sort of a long, thick book. Um, I would encourage you, don't be daunted. Just come in at whatever level you can manage. You can be on the beach where you don't read a thing ever, and that is totally fine. Or you can snorkel and pay a little bit of attention to the things that you like and ignore the rest. Or you can scuba dive and read everything and go down the rabbit hole. And whatever you want to do with any of that is perfectly fine. I'm delighted to have you. Uh, but I would encourage you, if you're not on our email list, uh, to please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston uh, and send me an email, and I will get you added to that. So that hideous strength, if you're just starting to read this book, uh, I encourage you to read only one chapter at a time and make a chart of characters because it is confusing. Those of you that have been in the class for a while, look for where Abolition of Man themes pop up because they are just all over the place. And if you felt like it was just such a long slog when we were doing Abolition of Man, it will probably make you feel like maybe it was a little bit worth it when you see some of these themes show up in this book. So uh, 
We talked about in Abolition of Man the whole idea of men without chess, the importance of objective value, uh, that there is such a thing as truth. There are things that are true, and there are things that are false. There are things that are good, there are things that are evil. There are things that are beautiful, there are things that are not beautiful. And that whole presumption is under major assault in our culture. Um, Lewis also talks about the way, the Tao, the natural law, the understanding of right and wrong that is imprinted on the human heart, and the idea of the abolition of man, that there is an element within society that desires to throw God off of his throne, to deny his existence, and to exalt man instead, and put man in charge of everything. And we've talked before about the plot of the Ransom Trilogy of space travel, um, and then that hideous strength being the culmination of all of it. And the title of this book, and the title becomes more and more apt each chapter that we go through, the shadow of that hideous strength, six mile and more it is of length, the whole idea of the Tower of Babel, a man saying to God, I don't need you, I can do amazing and wondrous things that are all on my own power, and I don't need you, God, stay out of my way. And as Lewis said, this is a story about devilry. He's very serious about spiritual warfare and the role of the devil in all of this. So we started in this book with Jane Studdock having dreams that she wants to be cured of because they're frightening dreams, her husband trying to get ahead in his academic career, and then this whole proposal to sell Bragdon Wood, this beautiful ancient site where Merlin's Well is, um, a medieval site that people come from all over England, um, and they sell it um, to the nice, the nice. You have to love the nice, right? Yeah, so there's that. Uh, and then we go through the second chapter and see this dinner where Mark uh, toadies to all of the powers that be in the university, and he's so full of himself as a young 20-something-year-old academic that all these older, impressive men with power in the college are fawning on him. Uh, and then we see this journey where Mark goes off to the nice at Belberry, and Jane goes off to the community of St. Anne's that we don't really know much about. But there's a beautiful journey that we unpacked. If you weren't here for that class, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one because it's really important, the difference in the two journeys. Then we have uh, the introduction to the nice, uh, where we hear all the doublespeak. Poor Mark going in for a job interview. It seems to me it's almost like a Monty Python skit of like going in and thinking you're going in for one thing and the other people think you're there for something else. But Mark is trying to get basic questions answered like, what is the job I'm interviewing for? Who would I work for? What would I be doing? And they treat him like he's crazy for wanting to know these things. So he gets very frustrated. Jane goes to St. Anne's, and she is disturbed and attracted at the same time. She's attracted to it, but she hates the idea that she might have to give up her independence. She does not want to be interfered with. She is all about equality. She wants to really, in her heart of hearts, best her husband career-wise, and she feels like anything that gets in the way of that um, is repressive, and she doesn't want anything to do with it. 
And then in the fourth chapter, The Liquidation of Anachronism, we see one famous scientist who's at the nice decides to leave, and then he is murdered uh, right after that. Uh, Mark meets the mad parson of the nice, who sounds like a clergyman from certain denominations that I will not name, um, where he just is totally off track, completely off track about what Christianity has as its main message. And he thinks everything is about the here and now, that there is no such thing as eternity, there's no such thing as the kingdom of God, and then when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, he's actually prophesying about the nice. Now, that takes some theological and hermeneutical creativity, uh, but he does that, and so Mark listens to all of that, and then Mark finds out that they want him to write propaganda. But he's so desperate for a job that he doesn't really mind. And so in the next chapter, he still tries to get clarity about his job, but he ends up making the director angry with him. And Fairy Hardcastle, who's this very frightening woman who's head of the secret police, uh, gets him more involved in writing propaganda to rehabilitate this criminal Alcasan, the one who murdered his wife and who was guillotined, and he, she wants Mark to be writing about trying to rehabilitate his reputation. Jane, meanwhile, finds out that some more people she likes have gone to St. Anne's, so she gets more interested in that. The next chapter, Fog, Mark takes a job at the NICE that is almost just like a student internship. It's a huge step down, uh, but he's admitted to the inner circle at the NICE. He can get whatever money he wants, and he starts getting really excited about working on propaganda, which shows how far he's fallen. Jane, meanwhile, sees this creepy guy with the pince-nez, the little glasses that sit on his nose, and she sees the man with the pince-nez, and she is so horrified by the evil that just emanates from this man that she immediately goes to St. Anne's. And so when she goes to St. Anne's, she tells him what's happened in this dream, and they ask her if she wants to see the director. And so she says she does. She's not prepared for what's going to happen. She goes in, and immediately she, she says her entire world is unmade. And if you haven't read this chapter, please go read that part. It is so just stunningly beautiful. And Lewis captures this whole idea of the beauty of holiness and goodness and all of those things that are embodied in the director, the beauty of the space in which he's living, the way that space is appointed. There's order, there's beauty, there's color, there's light. All of these things that Jane is just overwhelmed by to the point that everything else that she thinks of just becomes totally insignificant. And it's very much like the idea, and we talked about this last week, of worship, that when you really come into the presence of God and you are in a profound worship experience, no matter how awful things are in the rest of your life, that all just falls away because you're drawn to the very presence and power and holiness of God. So Jane has this amazing experience, and then she tries to go back home and she gets caught in a riot. She's arrested by the nice police. She is uh, tortured by
by Fairy Hardcastle, who is, uh, oh dear, well, let's just say she's perverse. Um, she is perverse, and she tortures Jane with a cigarette. I mean, it's just awful. Don't read that part. Um, and she finally escapes in the riot, and some nice people take her back. No, I shouldn't say that word, nice. Some kind people uh, take her back to St. Anne's. So that was such a beautiful chapter. It was so nice to have a breath of hope and life and joy and all that. And I'm sorry to say tonight we're going right back to hell. Uh, but it's okay, because it was not going to last forever. So here's a summary of Moonlight at Bellberry. And notice it's moonlight. Moonlight is not like sunlight. Remember all the sunlight that we saw, the gold sunlight that was all over the last chapter? Now we're at moonlight. Deputy Director Wither expresses his displeasure to Fairy Hardcastle about her arrest and torture of Jane Studdock and failure to prevent her escape. The fairy replies they all wanted Jane and it was necessary to do what she did in hopes of finding out where enemy headquarters are, and the fairy is summoned to meet with the head. Meanwhile, Jane wakes up at St. Anne's, where they're helping nurse her, and her sense of the atmosphere of St. Anne's has changed, and she is very happy to be there. She has some very strange encounters. She meets Mr. Bultitude the bear, who is a giant bear who lives in this manor house, who's totally tame and biddable. It's very weird. So don't worry if you thought that was weird. It is weird, um, but it's going to make sense later. And so um, she talks with the people there, and they tell her that the director likes to talk about marriage and things like that. And uh, meanwhile, they're having just this very ordinary time. They're like cooking vegetables. And the interesting thing is this is an era where people that lived in a manor house, the people cooking the vegetables would not have been the main people that lived in the manor house. It would have been their staff. But the thing that it, it doesn't strike us quite as much as it would have at the time, but the fact that all these people of different social groups are together peeling vegetables and cooking them, and there's a bear in and out, um, tells us that this is a very unusual kind of community. So meanwhile, back at Bellberry, Mark is so excited. His propaganda articles have been well received. And to make it even better, his articles about the riots, not everybody at the NICE knows where they came from. So he feels like he is in on the big secret with the big dogs at the NICE. And so he can look down at all those little people who are not in the know. So he is very excited about that and also very excited that the articles seem to have done the trick that the government is going to say, okay, no more civil liberties. Uh, we're going to declare emergency powers, and we're going to be able to do whatever we want to and just arrest people and tough. Yes, so lovely. Meanwhile, um, the director comes up to Mark and starts flattering him. Remember, this is the same director that after talking to Mark for an hour, he's like, you are stuttered, aren't you? He doesn't really even know who Mark is, but now all of a sudden he's like, oh, you're doing such fine work, we couldn't do without you. And so then the director sort of oddly shifts the subject to Mark's wife and says, we'd love to have her come out and live with us at the NICE. And Mark is horrified. 
because he realizes that the instant Jane came out there, she would be like, what kind of place is this? And what have you gotten yourself into? And he loves all these different things about his life there, and he knows it would all completely fall apart if she came. So Mark then goes to talk with the fairy, and she says that he's in big trouble because the director made this huge concession to invite his wife, and Mark didn't accept, and now he's going to be in big trouble, and that he's in the bad graces of the director. And then Mark starts talking with Philostrato, um, who's another one of the mad scientists there. And Philostrato, is, he is on about, let's get rid of organic life. Organic life is messy. Who wants trees? Trees shed leaves, and they have pollen, which I might sort of agree with that this week. Um, but he says, the best kind of tree is the one that I saw that was all made out of metal. And you could pick it up and move it around wherever you wanted a tree. It was great. And he's like, whenever you pick up something in the woods and it's alive, you look and like, ooh, and throw it down. So we should get rid of all organic life. So Philostrato starts talking to Mark more and more about the head. And Mark thinks he's talking about this guy named Jules, who's kind of a figurehead, famous guy. Um, that has an honorary title. And Philostrato is like, no, 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 that is not the head. And then Philostrato talks about the moon being the ideal world, dead and empty, no vegetation, no atmosphere, no moisture, just clean white powder. And that there's this civilization that lives under the ground where they've dispensed with their organic bodies and all they have left is their mind. And that this is the great thing. And then he goes on to reveal that the head, the one that the nice is organized around, is Francois Alcassan. And he literally is the head, because that's all there is of him. It's this man, dead man's head, that they are keeping alive. Now, you're supposed to notice, I'm sure you all all figured this out, there is a big contrast between the head of the nice and the head of St. Anne's. At the head of St. Anne's, there's beauty and holiness and golden sunlight and well-being and joy and all of those things. And here, there's fear and intimidation and things that smell bad and clinical and awful and all of that. So. Lewis is making it pretty clear that there's a dichotomy going on here. So we're going to look at a few key passages here and the themes that are coming up. So this first one. I'm the last person, Miss Hardcastle, said the deputy director, to wish to interfere with your uh, private pleasures. But really, it was some hours before breakfast time, and the old gentleman was fully dressed and unshaved, but if he had been up all night, it was odd that he had let his fire go out. He and the fairy were standing by a cold and blackened grate in his study. She can't be far away, said Fairy Hardcastle. We'll pick her up some other time. It was well worth trying. If I'd got out of her where she'd been, and I should have got it if I'd had a few minutes longer, why, it might have turned out to be enemy headquarters. We might have rounded up the whole gang. 
And this is a great example of the theme of amorality, not just immorality. There is no morality. Um, the deputy director, he doesn't want to comment on this perverse, sadistic torture or say there was anything wrong with that. That's just a private pleasure. No big deal. So we have that going on. Then this next section. It was a golden opportunity running into that girl. If I hadn't taken it, you'd have talked about lack of initiative, as I did. You talk about exceeding my authority. You can't frighten me. I know bloody well we're all for it if the nice fails. And in the meantime, I'd like to see you do without me. We've got to get that girl, haven't we? But not by an arrest. We have always deprecated anything like violence. These are the people that just had those riots, remember? We've always deprecated violence. If a mere arrest could have secured the uh, goodwill and collaboration of Mrs. Studdock, we should hardly have embarrassed ourselves with the presence of her husband. And even supposing, merely of course, for the purpose of argument, that your action in arresting her could be justified, I'm afraid your conduct of the affair after that is open to serious criticism. So you'll notice there's slavish obedience here. She says, we're going to all die if the nice goes under. We realize we're all under sentence of death here if we don't do what we're supposed to. And then this whole manipulation thing here, it finally becomes clear that the nice doesn't want Mark at all. All they want is Jane. And this whole sucking up to Mark, pretending to give him a job, is just so they can get Jane in there and use the power of her dreams. So here's Mark with his castle in the air idea about how smart he is and what a great guy he is and how Jane should be so amazed at how excellent what he's been able to do is when the fact of the matter is he's just a pawn. He's a drone that they couldn't care less about. He's just the bait to try to get Jane but he doesn't know that yet. And then this whole idea about false pretenses. The nice will lie and lie and lie. We deprecate violence. Oh, we're fostering riots where people are going to be killed. They'll just lie and lie and lie because they are amoral. All they're about is what their goal is. At last they came to a place where the lights were on and there was a mixture of animal and chemical smells and then to a door which was open to them after they had parlayed through a speaking tube. Philostrato, wearing a white coat, confronted them in the doorway. Enter, said Philostrato. He expects you for some time. Is it in a bad temper, said Miss Hardcastle? Shh, said Weather. And in any case, my dear lady, I don't think that is quite the way in which one should speak of our head. His sufferings and his peculiar condition, you know, you are to go in at once, said Philostrato, as soon as you have made yourselves ready. So you see here there's this usurping of the control of life and death. What is normal bodily life and bodily death is being messed with, is being taken over by the nice, and they are deciding what to do. So a little breath of light for just a minute. Long after sunrise, there came into Jane's sleeping mind a sensation which, had she put it into words, would have sung, Be glad, thou sleeper, and thy sorrow offcast. 
I am the gate to all good adventure. And after she had wakened and found herself lying in the present languor with winter morning sunlight, oh, look, there's sunlight again, falling across her bed, the mood continued. He must let me stay here now, she thought. And so you see this joy and adventure, the sense of anticipation that she has because she is back in the manor at St. Anne's. Contrast that to the smells and the speaking tubes and all of that going on at the nice. And then a little further on at St. Anne's. You can get up in the afternoon if you like, Mrs. Studdock, she said. I should just take a quiet day till then. What would you like to read? There's a pretty large library. You'll notice no one at the nice reads. Have you seen that? No one reads at all. There's a pretty large library. I'd like the Curdy books, please. Oh, the Curdy books. Hmm. I don't know if you remember in chapter 7, we heard the Curdy books mentioned again. Has anybody in here read the Curdy books? Oh, yes. Go, Trish Bhutan. All right, so the Curdy books, The Princess and Curdy, one of the great fairy stories by George MacDonald, the author who Lewis said baptized his imagination. There's a great handout on that over there. We're going to come back to that later on. Um, when Lewis mentions something twice in two chapters, that's like shouting from the mountaintop, this is important. So Curdy is important. So I'd like the Curdy books, please, said Jane, and Mansfield Park and Shakespeare's sonnets. What good taste she has. Having thus been provided with reading matter for several hours, she very comfortably went to sleep again. And this is literature of truth and beauty. It is literature of adventure. It is literature that is framed in a profoundly Christian worldview. Then further on at the manor, Mrs. Stuttick said Ivy Maggs with some solemnity, if the director wanted to have a tiger about the house, it would be safe. That's the way he has with animals. There isn't a creature in the place that would go for another or for us once he's had his little talk with them, just the same as he does with us. You'll see. This is the benevolent power of the director. It might remind you of lessons and carols and the lesson of the lion will lie down with the ox, they will all eat straw, all of those kinds of things. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And that's exactly what you see going on here. And so then she goes downstairs, a wide open hearth glowing with burning wood lit up the comfortable form of Mrs. Dimble, who was seated in a kitchen chair at one side of it apparently, from the basin in her lap and other indications on the table beside her, engaged in preparing vegetables. And as we said before, this was not something that was suitable to be doing, but it is a reminder of the beauty and dignity of honest work and the profound connection of organic life, of things that grow to the kingdom of God. These are not things that are in our control. We can't make rain and sun. We can't make seed grow. Those are things that come from God and the way he has made the world. So Jane goes on. When Jane had washed and had tea and dressed herself with as much care as strange hairbrushes and a strange mirror allowed, she set out to look for the inhabited rooms. She was wanting 
to get near where the director was. She passed down one long passage through that silence which is not quite like any other in the world, the silence upstairs in a big house on a winter afternoon. Presently, she came to a place where two passages met. Jane chose the way to her left and came to a gallery when she looked down the staircase into a large hall where daylight, there it is again, mixed with firelight, on the same level with herself but only to be reached by descending to a landing and ascending again, were shadowy regions which she recognized as leading to the director's room. A sort of solemnity seemed to her to emanate from them, and she went down into the hall almost on tiptoes. And now for the first time, her memory of that last and curious experience in the blue room came back to her with a weight which even the thought of the director himself could not counteract. And this is that whole idea of the fragrance and weight of the beauty of holiness, that she's recalling that, that as she approaches even the physical location of it, it brings it all back to her. And you'll notice just the way Lewis writes that, the pace slows down. There's peace that's in the way he's done the writing. Mrs. Maggs has already left the room. Jane took advantage of this to say to Mother Dumble in a low voice, Mrs. Maggs seems to make herself very much at home here. Remember, Mrs. Maggs used to be Jane Studdock's maid, and so she's not quite sure why they are sitting together. My dear, she is at home here. As a maid, you mean? Well, no more than anyone else. She's here chiefly because her house has been taken from her. She had nowhere else to go. You mean she's one of the director's charities? Certainly that. Why do you ask? Well, I don't know. It did seem a little odd that she should call you Mother Dumble. I hope I'm not being snobbish. <laughs> You're forgetting that Cecil and I are another of the director's charities. Isn't that rather playing on words? Not a bit. Ivy, well, I guess it's Cecil. Ivy and Cecil and I are all here because we were turned out of our homes. And it's this whole idea of equality at the foot of the cross. All of them, despite their different circumstances, they are all utterly beholden to the director who has literally saved them. Gosh, that sounds like someone else. My dear, the director is a very wise man. Some of what he says, or what else the masters say about marriage, does seem to me to be a lot of fuss about something so simple and natural that it oughtn't to need saying at all. But I suppose there are young women nowadays who need to be told it. You haven't got much use for young women who do, I see. Well, perhaps I'm unfair. Things were easier for us. We were brought up on stories with happy endings and on the prayer book. We always intended to love, honor, and obey, and we had figures, and we wore petticoats, and we liked waltzes. And what, she, what he's getting at here is just this whole idea of the beauty of God's design, the importance of good stories, the importance of biblical worship. You might not know it, but the prayer book, I always forget the statistic, but it's something like 70% of the Book of Common Prayer is right out of the Bible. So it is full of biblical wisdom. And you know, she's saying to Jane, who thinks all of this is very out of date, that this is what she was brought up with. It was what she was cultivated in. 
And of course, the problem is when you cease cultivating that, it begins to disappear. So back to the nice. Mark sat down to lunch that day in good spirits. Everyone reported that the riot had gone off most satisfactorily. Now you might just notice, if you're in good spirits because a fake riot went off well, that might just cause you to pause a little. So everyone reported the riot had gone off most satisfactorily, and he had enjoyed reading his own accounts of it in the morning papers. He enjoyed it even more when he heard Steele and Kosser talking about it in a way that showed they did not even know how it had been engineered, much less who had written it up in the newspapers. And he had enjoyed his morning, too. And it involved a conversation with Frost, the fairy, and Wither himself about the future of Edso. All were agreed the government would follow the almost unanimous opinion of the nation as expressed in the newspapers. It's a little irony there. The opinion of the nation and what the newspapers say. Uh, and put it temporarily under the control of the institutional police. An emergency governor of Edgestone must be appointed. Feverstone was the obvious man. As a member of parliament, he represented the nation. As a fellow of Bracton, he represented the university. As a member of the institute, he represented the institute. All the competing claims that might otherwise have come into collision were reconciled in the person of Lord Feverstone, who of course has no integrity whatsoever. So you've got the pride going on the whole inner ring thing, and this whole grabbing for power by abrogating liberties. Wither had thawed out in a most encouraging manner. He'd taken Mark aside, spoken vaguely but paternally of the great work he was doing, and finally after, asked after his wife. The DD hoped there was no truth in the rumor which had reached him that she was suffering from her, some nervous disorder, i.e. the torture, that the nice police inflicted on her that he knows all about. Because, said Weather, it had occurred to me in view of the great pressure of work which rests on you at present and the difficulty, therefore, of your being at home as much as we should all wish, that in your case the Institute might be induced, I'm speaking in quite an informal way, that we should all be delighted to welcome Mrs. Stettick here. Until the DD had said this, Mark had not realized that there was nothing he would dislike so much as having Jane at Belberry. There were so many things that Jane would not understand. Not only the pretty heavy drinking, which was becoming his habit, but, oh, everything from morning to night. For it's only justice both to Mark and to Jane to record that he would have found it impossible to conduct in her hearing any one of the hundred conversations which had life at Belberry involved. Her mere presence would have made all the laughter of the inner ring sound metallic and unreal. And what he now regarded as common prudence would seem to her, and through her to himself, mere flattery, backbiting, and toadying. Jane in the middle of Belberry would turn the whole of Belberry into a vast vulgarity, flashy and yet furtive. His mind sickened at the thought. So we've got the whole inner ring, we've got pride, now we've got guilt added into the mix. So, and here's Fairy Hardcastle. Well, here we've all been working on your behalf and soothing the director down, and this morning we thought we'd finally succeeded. He was talking about giving you the appointment originally intended for you and waiving the probationary period, not a cloud in the sky, and then you have five minutes chat with him and in that time, you've managed to undo it all. I begin to think you are mental. 
what the devil's wrong with him this time? Well, you ought to know, didn't he say something about bringing your wife here? Yes, he did. What about it? And what did you say? I said not to bother about it, and of course thanked him very much and all that. The fairy whistled. Don't you see, honey, she said, gently tapping Mark's scalp with her knuckles, that you could hardly have made a worse blooper. It was the most terrific concession for him to make. He's never done it to anyone else. You might have known he'd be offended if you cold-shouldered him. He's burbling away now about lack of confidence, says he's hurt, which means that somebody else soon will be. He takes your refusal as a sign that you're not really settled here. And this is just lies. It's just all lies. They don't care anything about him. They don't care anything about any of this. It's all just totally made up to try to manipulate him into getting her there so that they can get hold of her visions. It's just unbelievable, this awful coercion and just lying through their teeth at every level. And then this really creepy part about organic life. The forest tree is a weed, but I tell you, I have seen the civilized tree in Persia. It was a French attaché who had it because he was in a place where trees do not grow. It was made of metal, a poor crude thing, but half of it were perfected, light, made of aluminum, so natural it would even deceive. It would hardly be the same as a real tree, said Winter. But consider the advantages. You get tired of him in one place, two workmen carry him somewhere else. Wherever you please, it never dies. No leaves to fall, no twigs, no birds building nests, no muck and mess. I suppose one or two his curiosities might be rather amusing. Why one or two? At present, I allow, we must have forest for the atmosphere. Presently, we find a chemical substitute. And then, why any natural trees? I foresee nothing but the art tree all over the earth. In fact, we clean the planet. And this whole idea of disdain for God's creation, disdain for natural life, disdain for the body. Um, if you remember the old heresy of Gnosticism, there's a lot of good old Gnostic thought going on here. I would not have any birds either. On the art tree, I would have the art birds all singing when you press a switch inside the house. When you're tired of the singing, you switch them off. Consider again the improvement. No feathers dropped about, no nests, no eggs, no dirt. It sounds, said Mark, like abolishing pretty well all organic life. And why not? It is simple hygiene. Listen, my friends, if you pick up some rotten thing and find this organic life crawling all over it, do you not say, ugh, the horrid thing, it is alive, and then drop it. So this whole just disdain for the beauty of God's creation, for the order of life, for life and death and the cycle of seasons and all of that, and certainly the idea of the beauty of nature doesn't come anywhere in here at all. So, in us, organic life has produced mind. It has done its work. After that, we want no more of it. We do not want the world any longer furred over with organic life, like what you call the blue mold, all sprouting and budding and breeding and decaying. We must get rid of it. By little and little, of course, slowly we learn how. Learn to make our brains live with less and less body. 
learn to build our bodies directly with chemicals, no longer have to stuff them full of dead brutes and weeds, learn how to reproduce ourselves without copulation. Yikes. The world I look forward to is the world of perfect purity, the clean mind and the clean minerals. What are the things that most offend the dignity of man? Birth and breeding and death. How if we are about to discover that man can live without any of the three? Do you want to be a mere hireling? But you've already come in too far for that. You are at the turning point of your career, Mr. Studdock. If you try to go back, you will be as unfortunate as the fool Hingist. If you come really in, the world, bah, what do I say, the universe is at your feet. But of course I want to come in, said Mark. Can you imagine? A certain excitement was stealing over him. The head thinks you cannot really be one of us if you will not bring your wife here. He will have all of you and all that is yours or nothing. If you've read Screwtape, that should sound familiar. That's the devil. Yeah, you must bring the woman in too. She also must be one of us. So again, it's coercion, this whole obsession with power, complete rejection of God's design. Yes, a dead world, said Mark, looking at the moon. No, said Philostrato. He'd come close to Mark and spoke almost in a whisper, the bat-like whisper. Bat-like? Whisper of a voice that is naturally high-pitched. No, there is life there. Do we know that? asked Mark. Oh, see, intelligent life. Under the surface, a great race, further advanced than we are, an inspiration, a pure race. Hitler, anyone? A pure race. They have cleaned their world, broken free almost from the organic. But how? They do not need to be born and breed and die. Only their common people, their coniglia, do that. The masters live on. They retain their intelligence. They can keep it artificially alive after the organic body has been dispensed with. A miracle of applied biochemistry. They do not need organic food, you understand. They are almost free of nature, attached to her only by the thinnest, finest cord. So you see all through this just absolute contempt, contempt for natural life and for the order of creation. The Institute, the nice, is for something better than housing and vaccinations and faster trains and curing people of cancer. It is for the conquest of death, or for the conquest of organic life, if you prefer. They are the same thing. It is to bring out of that cocoon of organic life, which sheltered the babyhood of mind, the new man, the man who will not die, the artificial man, free from nature. Nature is the ladder we have climbed up by. Now we kick her away. And then this part is just awful. The head himself has already survived death, and you shall speak to him this night. Is the young man ready? asked the voice of Straight, Straight's the mad parson. You have explained it to him then? He turned to Mark, and the moonlight, oh, there we are again, the moonlight in the room was so bright that Mark could partially recognize his face. Do you mean really to join us, young man, said Straight? There's no turning back once you've set your hand to the plow, and there are no reservations. The head has sent for you. Do you understand? The head. You will look upon one who was killed and is still alive. 
The resurrection of Jesus in the Bible was a symbol. Hmm. Tonight you shall see what it symbolized. This is real man at last, and it claims all our allegiance. What the devil are you talking about, said Mark. My friend is quite right, said Philostrato. Our head is the first of the new men, the first that lives beyond animal life. As far as nature is concerned, he is already dead. If nature had had her way, his brain would now be moldering in the grave. But he will speak to you within this hour, and you will obey his orders. But who is it, said Mark? It is Francois Alcassin, said Philostrato. It is the beginning of man immortal, and man ubiquitous, said Strake. Man on the throne of the universe. It is what all the prophecies really meant. At first, of course, said Philostrato, the power will be confined to a number, a small number of individual men, those who are selected for eternal life. A king cometh, said Strake, who shall rule the universe with righteousness and the heavens with judgment. You thought all that was mythology. You thought because fables had clustered around the phrase son of man that man would never really have a son who will wield all power, but he will. And so, said Strake, the lessons you learned at your mother's knee return. God will have power to give eternal reward and eternal punishment. God, said Mark, how does he come into it? I don't believe in God. But, said Philostrato, does it follow that because there was no God in the past, that there will be no God also in the future? We are offering you the unspeakable glory of being present at the creation of God Almighty. Here in this house, you shall meet the first sketch of the real God. It is a man, or a being made by man, who will finally ascend the throne of the universe and rule forever. Okay, well, hopefully lightning is not going to strike. Um, in case you didn't notice, that is blasphemy. If you were curious what blasphemy is, that's a great example of blasphemy. Um, false Christ and this whole idea of elevating power and elevating the human will and the human selfishness and the power of the few, the ones who know better, the conditioners, all of this was an abolition of man. And now we have literally a man with no chest, just a head. Very creepy. Okay, so some of the cheery themes that we see in this chapter. Um, amorality, total amorality. Um, not even a clue about morality that there's any such thing as right and wrong. Slavish obedience and manipulation and false pretenses, usurping control of life and death, and then that little breath that we had at the manor, joy and adventure, literature of truth and beauty, the benevolent power of the director, the beauty and dignity of honest work, the fragrance and weight of the beauty of holiness, equality at the foot of the cross, the beauty of God's design, and the importance of good stories and biblical worship. But then back to the darkness. Pride, the inner ring, power through abrogating liberties, the inner ring, pride and guilt, lies, manipulation, coercion, disdain, contempt, for God's creation and for natural life, rejection of the body and of God's design, 
usurping God, blasphemy, false Christ, and this huge contrast of the journey to and the presence of the director on the one hand, where there's light and beauty and joy and it's just everything ordered and lovely and peaceful, and then the horror of this head where it smells bad, it's just awful. So there's a huge contrast going on here. But I want you to notice that you think about these themes, how disturbing it is that a lot of this is going on in our world right now. So, some practices of hope and wisdom. I think we need to say this verse after all that. Please say this with me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the first practice of hope and wisdom, read good stories and literature. There's no good story and there's no literature at the nice. Uh, but at St. Anne's there is. And this is something that is so important because what we read, what we bring in through our eyes, matters. And if you are just reading what's in the news, you are not bringing good things in through your eyes. And when you live in a culture where good and evil are blurred and evil is called good and good is called evil, you need the old stories that are clear about these things to help reframe your thinking. Uh, I love these two verses. This first is Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And then this about Daniel. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. The second thing is practice honest physical work that respects God's creation. Our culture is um, unusual in the history of the world that we are so detached from nature. It used to be that almost everybody had somebody in their family that had a farm. And as we become more and more urban and more and more away from nature and buying food only in the supermarket, we're, just, we're not connected with the whole of what God has made in the creation. So here, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. It's not an accident that it's a garden. To work it and keep it. And that is before the fall. Working and keeping the garden is not a curse, although sometimes it may feel like it. Um, it is not a curse. It is part of what we're created to do, to steward the beautiful life that God has made. And then from Ephesians, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And I'm not going to go off on all of the people today who are working remotely and are stuck in front of a computer for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and you never touch anything that's real. It's all just 
the stuff out there. Um, and we need to be connected back to the physicality of the world. Third, be, beware the seduction of lies and the inner ring. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. And then fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, cling, cling for dear life to robust biblical teaching and worship. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching you have heard from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So that brings us full circle back to this song. And given everything that we just saw in that chapter, which is so eerily applicable, one of the things that I think all of us who are Christians need to think about is what does it look like to do what the song actually says? So what I would like for us to do to close tonight is just read these words together and think of it as a prayer. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong and the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Come, see the cross, where love and mercy meet, as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes like crushed beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away, and Christ emerges from the grave. This victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see him. So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. That is something worth meditating on because I think one of the things that is so important that this gets so exactly right is that I think a lot of the world that is in darkness does not perceive our battle cry to be love. I think our battle cry is often perceived to be judgment. And there may be judgment that is due 
but they can't hear that if there's not love that is the louder cry. And then our call is to love the captive soul, to understand that so many people have been taken captive, just like Mark Studdock in the story. He has been sold a bill of goods, and he believes it. And in some ways, you can say, well, it's his own stupid fault. But the fact of the matter is he believes it, and he needs to be rescued. He needs to be rescued. So um, I would encourage you to meditate on these words. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for uh, just the stark portrayal of the way the enemy operates that we see in this chapter. But Lord, we thank you even more for the beauty and truth and holiness that we see around the people that are called by your name. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live out the words of this song, that we would be an army bold whose battle cry is love, who understands that our call is to love that captive soul while raging against the captor. Lord, we pray that you would use us, that you would strengthen us, that you would remind us of your love, and that you are the one who has ultimately won the victory on the cross for all ages. And we rest in that and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. We will be back next week.